Welcome to the CyberLife Podcast, where we help you learn cybersecurity best practices, give you a weekly update on the latest cybersecurity news, and share valuable career advice. Hey everyone, in today's episode, I have a good friend of mine, Chip Harris. Chip is a senior level pen tester right now, or quote unquote, ethical hacker. He's got over 20 years experience in the cybersecurity world across a, a number of different areas. He's done a lot of work for government agencies, so a lot of classified work. He's authored uh, textbooks that are used by university programs. He's written content for the University of Arizona's cybersecurity master's degree program. And like I said, he's got decades of experience, primarily in the critical infrastructure space. So if you think about oil and gas or water plants, power grids, et cetera, uh, chips involved in all that stuff for many governments around the world, not just the U.S. And you can find Chip as a guest on many podcasts, as well as a guest over on the CyberLife television show episodes over on YouTube. So if you're watching this or listening to this episode over on YouTube, just do a quick search for Chip and you'll see the TV show episodes that I'm talking about. And if you're not, then just go over and search my name, Ken Underhill, on YouTube and you'll find the channel and then uh, you'll be able to find Chip's television show appearance uh, from there. So uh, you will notice that we are using a fake image for Chip. Again, that's because he does a lot of classified work and we can't put his actual photo out there, but I, I have seen him uh, his real face, and I can tell you that uh, if you just picture like a Kelvin Klein model or Abercrombie and Fitch model or some other type of male model, that's exactly what Chip looks like. So without further ado, let's dive right in with Chip. And today we're going to be talking about critical infrastructure, kind of breaking down what that actually is and some of the things that organizations can do, as well as for those that are maybe looking at this as a career path, Chip's going to share some advice on that. So again, let's dive right in and learn from Chip. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Chip. You're world famous by now. So we're going to talk today about uh, critical. <laughs> At least in my mind, I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's all that matters, right? What, what we what we consider about ourselves in our own mind. So today we're going to talk about critical infrastructure, all things kind of around that, without giving away anything classified, or at least we hope we won't, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. If I get some people with suits knocking on my door, I know we went a little too far, but for those that don't know, Chip, like what is critical infrastructure and why? And I think when you answer, like, what is it? You're kind of, kind of allude to the next part of the question, which is why is it a prime target for cyber attacks? Yes. Okay. So in, in the IT world, you have information technology, information technology being your servers, you know, your laptop, your work desktop, you know, any, you know, your, your remote connections, you know, stuff like that, you know, stuff that like the cloud services that is, you know, stuff that you're using on a computer that is IT stuff, your server, your data centers, you know, SQL databases, you know, so forth. Then you have on the other side, there's a line and then there's operational technology. Operational technology stands for OT or in the OT world, as we call it, is where you have lighting, plumbing, water, you know, building automation systems, your telephones, you know, your lighting in your phones, you know, as well as, um, you know, anything that deals with your power connections, you know, for those things. Uh, you know, like I tell people, if you go outside and you look at your meter that's on your house, normally it's a digital meter. Well, that digital meter connects, you know, to a light pole. That light pole then runs back to a colo that runs to a step down that runs to a power plant, you know, so that is what operational technology is, as I termed it, you know, years ago, it's the world 
underneath the world that you don't see. You don't really think about, you know, oh, I flip on a switch. Well, where did that come from? You know, or I turn on the water or the tap and, you know, there's, there's water that starts coming out. You know, people don't really sometimes think about all the process and the processes that's involved in that of operational technology of where it comes from. Are you able to give some examples of, of, and it doesn't have to be necessarily recent, but just cyber attacks that, um, whether it's U.S. or or externally around the world, but just kind of sure. attacks that people that we might that people might have seen like in the news, like they can kind of have that aha moment, like oh, okay, that's critical infrastructure. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, operational technology is just susceptible to malware, ransomware attacks, you know, and very specialized attacks because the attacks that happen on them happen on SCADA-based systems or, you know, uh, PLCs, paralogic controllers, uh, and our programmable logic controllers. Um, you know, you have different types of these things. Some of these are vendor-owned and operated. Um, you know, and when they're attacked, they're normally attacked, you know, sometimes around a specific vendor. So to give an example of that is, um, you know, there was one that was called Sandworm, you know, which they named after the Sandworm uh, from the, you know, Frank Herbert uh, books called Dune, uh, which is also an HBO, you know, uh, movie series as well. But Sandworm actually was a very highly specialized uh, malware program and uh, basically called Wiper Software. So in other words, it wipes out all the information, you know, instantaneously that's on a drive bricks the drive and makes it unusable. Um, but this malware that was written, uh, it's pretty much been known uh, to attack uh, certain specialized power grid systems. And it was actually created and used uh, by the FSB, which is the, you know, uh, Russian Secret Service, as well as the, you know, uh, uh, SVR, which is their version of the CIA, to attack Ukraine uh, and turn off their critical infrastructure and power and wipe those systems completely clean uh, to where there is nothing left on them. And that means that, you know, big, huge land areas and masses of the country, instead of dropping bombs and missiles on them, they just dropped some code, which completely turned off and wiped out some of those actual systems. The very good news is, is that that malware and ransomware did not attack their nuclear power facilities. If not, we would have had another Chernobyl-like event. So these things are very highly specialized, very customized code, and very specific on the things that they do. And um, what makes it so hard for people to understand, especially when it comes down to these attacks, is that computers update regularly. You know, they, they, they patch and they, they have services that come out to them, whether it be, you know, Windows or Linux or Apple. There's always patches and services and upgrades that, you know, are done to those on a very regular basis. Now, in OT technology, that's completely different. Um, their patch management cycle sometimes is one year, sometimes, you know, uh, every five years or on demand. You know, and there's a monetary, you know, green paper cost that goes with those things. So, you know, uh, for when uh, the government agency that I work with, uh, when we had to patch our systems, we had to pay that vendor a very huge sum of money to patch those systems because, well, we didn't have, you know, access to those systems. They're vendor owned, managed and controlled. We have very limited access to that. So we paid, some, you know, a couple million dollars, you know, to upgrade certain facilities to where this attack that was happening over in the Ukraine would not come over and attack in the U.S. 
The other part of that, though, too, is, and what makes it so interesting, is that, you know, we have seen things like that before in the past. Uh, you know, for an example, there's, they use code names, you know, uh, Ken. So one of them, you know, is like Dark Energy, Sandworm, Operation Steel Rain, Titan Rain. You know, there was uh, a lot of these operations that, you know, that have been categorized and been happening uh, for years and years and years. People think this is a new thing. Well, actually, it's not. These attacks have been happening since since the early 90s, you know, uh, and the ransomware and malware that attacks some of these systems, for example, like Saudi Ramco was um, a, well, the first cyber weapon that was actually chrono chronologically logged and used was called Stuxnet, which most people know what Stuxnet is. It was, you know, a customized code that was attacked, you know, PLCs and, um, you know, the uh, Iranians that would have the ability of processing and refining um, nuclear weapon stock to create a bomb. You know, that's what Stuxnet did. Stuxnet went out there and, you know, these uh, containers, you know, that actually, you know, uh, make um, uh, and rods that actually make, you know, um, uh, plutonium and uranium uh, is, you know, very customized systems, you know, very finite. It's, you know, it's, you know, um, it's, it's trial and error kind of systems. And, uh, what happened was, you know, code was introduced in Stuxnet, destroyed those systems, wiped them out, hurt their PLCs, and then set them back a couple of years to where they couldn't, you know, refine and produce uranium. Well, guess what? Their retaliatory attack, you know, uh, was against Saudi Arabia, and it was, you know, known as the Saudi Ramco attack, where they completely wiped out their oil production computers. All 60,000 of them were bricked. So, you know, this is um, sometimes it hits the news, sometimes it doesn't, you know, and it depends on what, you know, uh, who, what, when, where, you know, and how much, you know, uh, is affected. But as I tell people, you know, in IT systems, you lose data, you know, it's very inconvenient. Uh, you lose records, you know, uh, social security numbers, you know, uh, uh, informational data, you know, in OT technology, people get hurt because it affects affects the physical world. These attacks and these things that happen shut off power, shut off water, you know, um, cause things to blow up, you know, uh, cause things to have damage. And, you know, there's always a human uh, collateral damage and toll that actually comes with uh, OT technology when it is attacked because it is impacting the physical world. So, if we think about things like the, I mean, the supply chain, right? So obviously critical infrastructure has a supply chain. If, if for example, for those listening, if you have kids and you, let's say you got a little baby, the baby has to eat. So unless you make your own baby food, you go to the store, you buy the baby food. There's an entire process in place, right? For that to go from, you know, whatever, what a carrots, let's say for baby food, yeah. getting processed to yeah. be put in the little jar to eventually get to the store shelf for you to actually buy it. So when we think about kind of that that entire chain there, uh, maybe just as a, a general example, like how can an organization try to mitigate the risk in their supply chain? Well, that is, first off, you know, a very good question. Thank you for asking that, you know, and, you know, when we do have our supply chain is very fragile, very, very fragile. Um, and very good example is the baby food that you're talking about, as well as meat, poultry. You know, a lot of these things, you know, are dependent on 
uh, international commerce, you know, in other words, coming in from a port or port of call, uh, then getting, you know, uh, into a warehouse and being distributed either by rail, by train or by truck. And then, you know, being able to be received at a receiving area, like a receiving dock, and then being able to put on the shelves. Um, and the baby food formula was a very good example of two things. One was that the there's not a lot of those manufacturers in the United States. There's only three. So one of the plants shut down due to, you know, environmental standards not being met, and as well as they had a cyber attack. And that affected, you know, their processing and processing systems because they did not have nor pass, you know, FDA regulation, which is our food, you know, drug regulation. And then on top of that, you know, they had a cyber attack, which wiped out a lot of their systems. Now, they have yet to come out and say, oh, we knew about that, or we knew that some of these systems, you know, were vulnerable because we had put them publicly on the, the internet, you know, in the cloud, which I was like, well, that's a very bad idea because, you know, those systems have the ability of being attacked, for, you know, not only from the cloud, but they have the ability of being attacked on-prem, you know, and you made those systems publicly, you know, accessible through ports because the, you connected those systems to the public internet so you're just basically asking for it um and, and it hurt and it hurt a lot because you know that was a shortage of you know a need that you know was neat you know needed for children you know so that really affects kids you know and that also affects you know uh, our poultry our dairy you know uh, uh and the supply chain is very ot you know dependent very ot dependent um you know because if you don't have communication between stuff that's actually being happening in the transportation industry that it correlates with supply and demand, which that's, you know, that's how commerce works. And then, you know, the supply and demand and, you know, taking that and putting that into a cycle of from a port to shelf, as I tell people. In other words, it comes in from a port down to the transportation system, down to the management systems that control those, down to the OT systems that help, you know, uh, you know, bottle can and, you know, help the distribution of those, down to how they get onto a truck and then is sent to your local supermarket that's put on the shelves after they break down that stuff from a pallet. So that there's a lot of steps that's involved with that you know it and ot and if those things break well guess what there's a downtime and it causes a domino effect of those things to fall down now people say oh we'll throw blockchain on it or we'll throw ai on it or we'll throw you know uh pattern-based learning and intelligent design stuff on it that's fine and dandy, but that doesn't necessarily work in OT. OT is a lot different than IT. Now, from a management standpoint of view, IT is great doing that. But from a distribution standpoint of view, not so much. So how do you, you know, I mean, obviously organizations these days are all about the AI buzz, right? Oh my gosh, AI is going to solve all our problems. Where Where do you like kind of foresee organizations trying to leverage AI in the critical infrastructure space and then also like sharing your opinions on that. And, and uh, when you share opinions, please try to keep it G rated, <laughs> but, I, I, but, but it just kind of like, where, where, like yeah. where, do you see it, where do you see them? Because obviously practitioners, right? Like yourself know a lot of the risk, but I, I feel like there's going to be a, a push in that area from, from some senior leaders that maybe aren't, um, I don't want to say smart enough. That sounds bad, but like they, they're not edu <laughs> educated enough. 
you know, they're focused on the business side of things. So like, where, where do you maybe see that they're going to try to put that in, in play? And, you know, what are some of the concerns around that? I will start with the, the AI question first. Okay. AI is not a new thing. It's been around for a long, long time. It's just now becoming more publicly accessible, like chat GPT and whatever GPT that you want to be able to use for either from code development on down, because, you know, it's using, you know, different, um, you know, patterns and intelligent database systems to create and generate, you know, everything from code down to, you know, text down to, you know, books and so forth. In AI, will we eventually see, you know, some of those management management systems used in OT? Yes. Are they happening like as of right now? The answer is no. Uh, for the reason being is, is that, you know, when you look at a building, for example, like a sky rise or even your local warehouse, you know, that you see, you know, that's there, it's got conveyor belts, you know, and it's got stuff that, you know, um, moves product around. And, you know, even in a building, you've got air conditioning, HVAC, power, electrical, sewer, you know, so forth. Um, a lot of those systems are vendor owned and managed, you know, and there are multiple different systems that are there. Uh, and will they eventually go under a blanketed tarp AI? That is possible, you know, in the future. That's great. I, I, I would love to be able to, to do something and have something to where it's going to be able to interact with all those different systems all at once, all from one console, and then help me be able to control and maintain those systems. Um, you can do that to an extent now, but not to the point to where it's AI controlled. You know, there has to be someone looking at the screen you know, that, you know, when, when a flow monitor kicks off at a water treatment facility for someone to know what the, the screen means, what it's saying, and then, you know, uh, to be able to turn it on and off again. Say that controller went completely down, that means that somebody physically has to go to that location and turn that valve on and off, either what they call hand crank it. You know, they got to be able to physically touch it and be able to, you know, turn it on and off, you know, if the uh, systems actually fail. Now, we can't do that really right now with AI in a sense. In a sense, we can use it for detection, you know, and monitoring. We can use it for pattern-based learning for anomalous, you know, detection of errors or code, but not to the point to where it's going to 100% replace a human being, you know, to where it's kind of like a... You know, and I love it that people use Terminator or Skynet or anything that that doesn't exist now. It, it, it won't exist, you know, uh, for a very long time uh, because we are still having to be able to use those systems, you know, as a what we call one off system. So, in other words, HVAC is a one off system versus plumbing. That's an H, you know, uh, uh, one off system. One might be controlled by a vendor like Siemens. The other one might be controlled by another company like ABB or Bosch or, you know, whomsoever the vendor may be. So trying to get all of those things wrangled into one system is very hard uh, because a lot of those systems are proprietary. Same thing like healthcare. You know, we cannot put AI on 
you know, an x-ray machine yet, you know, or a CAT scan or MRI because of we don't want, you know, those systems to be accessible to the internet or susceptible to be changed by the vendor or being changed uh, by accident to where we irradiate someone, you know, and kill them, you know, so there are stop gaps right now that will always have to be in place because of human element and human error. That's just a given. It's just it's just how we are. We are not infallible creatures. Code is not infallible, you know, and neither is AI. You know, AI makes mistakes as well. Um, you know, and my personal opinion is, is that, yes, it is really cool and it's really nice to talk about, but is it practical for right now for me to put that into the systems that I control and, you know, monitor and help create? No, no, it's not. It's not, we are not there yet. Um, you know, it can help with design and design issues and it can help with, you know, those things, but it can't do a hundred percent implementation to where the human element is, you know, completely removed and taken out of it. Um, and maybe, in 2025, 20, 30 years, you know, our code's going to have to improve. Our processes are going to have to improve. You know, our intellectual, you know, uh, well-being is going to have to improve because that takes on a ton of vulnerability and risk. If I just give it over to the computer system and I take myself out of it to where I can't control those things, you know, and a malicious actor gets in and, you know, reprograms that code and says, okay, I'm going to make the temperature instead of 80 degrees, you know, come out of all the water heaters in the city, I'm going to raise it up to a hundred because they're digitally, you know, digitally monitoring and creating and changing those settings, you know, or I'm going to cause irregular pressure, you know, in a valve that could cause, you know, a steam vent to blow, you know, or a water, you know, uh, pipe to explode due to the pneumatics of pressure change, you know, and that could blow up out of the city street or it could blow out of the wall, you know, in a building and cause, you know, flooding damage, you know, or uh, there's, there's a lot of things that, from a risk and vulnerability and management standpoint that we don't, not yet, want to be able to address when it comes down to AI. And that's industry-wide, you know, whether it be in IT and OT. But in the OT side, it's really nice to talk about, not practical yet. You know, uh, will we eventually get there? In time, yes. Uh, but in, there's companies that are, you know, trying to make these things happen. You know, to where they they can take all of that, you know, and then be able to decipher it and put it into one management system. But, you know, we have to make that decision. Is that going to be the best thing for us to where we remove ourselves out of that and leave it up to the computers to run all of these systems by themselves? Um, you know, uh, and us have limited, you know, access, you know, to uh, uh, terminals or emulate those systems to, uh, for change and change management and vulnerability. We, we leave that up to the computer to do. So, uh, you know, fascinating, you know, uh, field, you know, to be in right now, especially in OT. Uh, and OT, we need as many people, in, you know, as we can, you know, that, that can get into uh, learning about, you know, these systems and so forth. It pays 
very well, you know, and I've talked to a lot of students, a lot of people in the industry is like, you know, IT has thousands of people that want to do this stuff, you know, that want to do everything from SOC analyst down to bench tech, down to CISO, to a virtual CSIO, to, you know, firewall and, all. and OT, it's a little different. You know, you, you've got to study a little bit more, you know, still have good grades, you know, and, and learn a little bit of IT and engineering and all these different kind of things. And it pays more than IT. You know, uh, because, you know, where there's thousands of people that want to do this stuff in IT, there's only hundreds of people that can do this in OT and the vendors will train you. You know, there's apprenticeship programs and journeyman programs, you know, that are out there, you know, that you can do and they'll pay for your college, you know, and they'll pay for your training. And guess what? You got a guaranteed J-O-B that pays six figures plus overtime or unionized, depending on where your location's at, and you have a job doing what you want to do. That's awesome. You know, and, um, I see that it will be a tool in that toolbox to where you have to learn it and know it. And the vendors will embrace it in time. Uh, but right now the answer is no. So is that, is that like the YouTube videos I see where I can, I, I can do nothing. And in 24 hours, I'll have a six figure job. Or does it like you mentioned, it actually takes real work. It takes real work, um, especially, you know, in OT, because, you know, you've got to know a little bit about electricity. You've got to know a little bit about engineering and plumbing and, you know, how these systems work and HVA systems, you know, uh, uh, how they work, you know, and you got to get, you know, IT, you know, you have to know a little bit of code. You have to know a little bit of, um, you know, dealing with uh, threats and vulnerabilities like I deal with on a daily basis, you know, and there's programs that are out there that are proprietary to a lot of those things. So you have to, you know, stip, you know, you got to take all 10 little fingers and kind of shove them into those 10 little pots and move them all around. And it's really good because you get a taste of everything, you know, and if you want to do field work, that's awesome. That's great. I mean, there, we need people, we need plumbers and electricians and carpenters and welders. Oh my God. We need these people that, you know, that we consider blue collar jobs that we've told people for years that they didn't, you know, we didn't need, you know, or you don't need that. You need to go to school and, you know, get a degree and get all these certifications and be a lawyer or be a doctor or whatnot. Well, guess what? Eventually someday you're going to need a damn carpenter and you're going to need a plumber and you're going to need those, uh, somebody that can weld for you eventually, or help you build a house, you know, or help you do uh, irrigation in your lawn or help you fix your toilet, you know, and those jobs, you know, are considered to be operational technology jobs. You know, they're blue collar jobs. Now I'm a blue collar guy trying to make it in a white collar world. Don't get me wrong. You know, that's how I started, you know, and I, you know, especially from the location and where I live, there were not a lot of job options. You know, there was not a lot of, you know, career paths that are in um, the rural South where I live. So, you know, it was either, you know, um, you know, work on a farm or, you know, work another blue collar job. And I really wanted to work in IT. You know, I saw computers as the future, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s when I started getting into this. And I started building, you know, a career path of working in cybersecurity, you know. And when I was doing this, there was no such thing as a certified ethical hacker or pen tester or forensic investigator or auditor. But guess what? You could get a degree in welding. You could get a degree, you know, in, you know, what we called shop class, you know, which uh, in vocational education, which does not hardly exist anymore, you know, in, in our, you know, uh, public education where I was, you know, uh, kind of grew up at. So 
a lot of this, you know, I learned, you know, from my dad, my dad had access to computers and I was like, anytime I could get in front of one, you know, I did. And, you know, I kept the blue collar ethic, you know, of learning about, you know, how does plumbing work? How does carpentry work? How does welding work? How do, you know, how do these electrical systems, like how does that fuse box connect to this, but there's a computer connected to it too. So once I started thinking about logical based systems, you know, I was like going, wow, there is a huge world that opened up to me, you know, because, um, you know, uh, either I was going to work in cybersecurity or I wanted to work at a nuclear power plant, you know, and I'm not a nuclear engineer, but I'm a really good, you know, cybersecurity engineer that could work at a nuclear power plant to make sure that bad guys don't hack it. You know, that's, you know, and I learned about FERP and NERP and, and you know, the, the agencies that monitor and control, you know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You know, I learned all their little laws and all the kind of stuff and whatnot. And, you know, I started applying and looking for those jobs. And eventually I found one, you know, with uh, Tennessee Valley, you know, Authority, uh, which is in the uh, upper Nashville area, uh, Tennessee area, and uh, for, uh, moved up there, uh, lived up there for six months, you know, and worked, uh, you know, in cybersecurity, you know, doing, you know, uh, working with their power grid, you know, and how power distribution works and all those kind of things. But, you know, the basic, you know, uh, premise of what I learned about electricity, still the same hadn't changed probably never will change you know since you know uh, edison and tesla you know that those those things acdc have not changed you know and how we regulate those power but how the distribution of that has changed a lot because a lot of that was computer driven you know and i learned a lot of those things same thing when it came down to learning about plumbing like okay your sink and your toilet and your bathtub drain into a drain that's in sent to here to be treated you know which is a water treatment facility well, how does that work? How do those sensors work? How do how do we know what's the difference between dirty water versus clean water versus, you know, high filtered water, you know, versus, you know, the, the chemicals that go in? All that's computer monitored, you know, and regulated. And, you know, we need people to take those jobs. We need people to work, you know, in the electrical industry, the nuclear, you know, industry from a cyber standpoint of view, because those systems guess what? They're 30 years old and we are just now at the point figuring out, you know, damn, if I plug in my electric car, you know, it's got more draw than my house does. So if I have to charge my electric car, I'm going to be spending $100, $200 more on electricity because, you know, it's, you know, an electrical car that's going, you know, connecting off the power grid and it's, you know, eating up, you know, just about as much electricity to charge as a washer dryer unit, you know, uh, and a refrigerator unit and a microwave unit, as well as your housing and lighting in your house. So it's basically adding, you know, more money into your system to charge your electric car. Now, no, I'm all for, you know, electrical vehicles and saving the environment, but I'm not some tree hugging hippie, you know, uh, by any means, you know, uh, and I've told people before is right now, you know, especially in the OT industry, uh, you know, there's many a car company that's looking for that balance between using gasoline and fossil fuels and electric, you know, to where they're doing, you know, a uh, car that can do both, you know, and hopefully we'll see that in our lifetime, you know, and uh, how's that done? That's done all through OT, IT and engineering, you know, and automotive tech. And, you know, we need more of those people 
in that industry because you know we have the the changeover that you and i've talked about before in the past of people that are retiring out you know the dirty old wizards that you know controlled you know and knew everything and had that knowledge base you know and have been there you know since you know the stone age and fire and water were a new thing those people are retiring out you know they're going to, to pasture and you know hopefully enjoy their golden years and there's not a lot of people right now that are replacing you know uh those people so i'm kind of looping the conversation back around is that we need you know people uh and in institutional technologies as well as public education to pick up you know uh the slack and really bring back that vocational education as well as learning how to breadboard you know and run circuits and you know how lighting works and, and plumbing you know because not everybody's going to be a lawyer not everybody's going to be a doctor not everybody wants to do that hell i didn't want to do it i didn't want to be a doctor i didn't want to be a lawyer i didn't want to you know uh be some corporate shill you know uh in some cubicle farm somewhere you know looking at a screen working on excel spreadsheets all day waiting for the sweet wreath of death i mean that's not what i wanted to do I wanted, you know, to be able to to work in IT and OT technology and work in cybersecurity and work in field operations, you know, and do all kinds of stuff. So, you know, and uh, I really wanted specifically to aim my career towards government service, you know, because government controls all of it. I mean, it's all government as well as state regulated. So, and they need as much help as they possibly could. So that's kind of where I've aimed my career for the past uh, almost uh, 10 years. So Chip, any final thoughts or advice, um, either for organizations out there or the, the career seekers out there? Sure. For the businesses and the industries, treat IT just like you do OT. Now it's you know uh, federally regulated that you must not have commingled systems, which that means you cannot have your IT and OT touching each other. You know, from a networking and physical standpoint of view, they have to be treated the same uh, as a you know uh, IT audit as well as an OT audit. You know, as well as you have an IT system, you have an OT system. Uh, and they have to be treated with the same amount of paranoia and cybersecurity and regulation as any other, you know, especially in the medical industry, uh, especially in the government, government and private sector. Um, because those things right now um, are the ones that are being attacked the most, you know, uh, especially, you know, uh, we have an election coming up. So we are gearing up for outside you know undue influence from other state nations to be attacking us you know not only from an it perspective but from an ot perspective we also see that from domestic terrorism uh, which is very high on the list right now um, you know uh, domestically people you know uh, using we call low kinetic attacks in other words taking either vehicles or weapons and attacking a um, power plant or you know an electrical distribution plant and causing it you know water to go out and facilities to go out to affect, you know, 60, 180,000, 200,000 people, you know, uh, as well as the national power grid. The national power grids, you know, is uh, all interconnected, you know, between each individual states. So if you're driving down the highway and you see those high power lines, you know, that are out there in the field that go for miles and miles and miles, that's your national power grid. That's your systems that connect, you know, one state to the next, you know, and uh, those are under attack. Uh, so, 
you have to treat the, the same amount of paranoia and, you know, security and craziness that comes with IT, you know, when you're dealing with your vendors and, and patch management and vulnerability and risk and, you know, as well as your audits and everything that you're doing in IT, you got to do that in OT as well, you know, and if, if you're not, then you are really setting yourself up for a huge, gigantic failure. Um, the number one example I give of that is that I had to go on a certified ethical hacking and pen testing, you know, uh, OT, you know, uh, audit for a hospital. And when I got there, uh, you know, I was able to social engineer my way into their systems uh, and was able to kinetically, you know, connect uh, laptops, jump drives and uh, hacking tools into their uh, systems and their servers. Uh, and then for a week, all I did was monitor their systems on everything that they were doing. And then after that, you know, uh, I was able to uh, move north, south, east, west within their systems, which were IT related, to then get into their OT systems because they had them had those systems connected to their internal systems. So guess what? It's all interconnected now. So the IT touches the OT. The OT touches the IT. And I started basically doing ethical hacking on those systems and getting as much information as I could. And in my report, I gave that to them and they said, so what? That, that means nothing to me. I'm like, well, it means everything to me. And they're like, give me an example. So here's the example I used. This is a hospital, by the way. I said, okay, uh, this is winter time. You know, you've got a snowstorm that's outside, just like you know, this was the winter time uh, when I did this. You know, uh, so I'm kind of painting a picture here, you know, of the landscape. So they were under, you know, uh, two or three, you know, uh, feet of snow in their area, which for a southerner is very weird for us to see because we're not used to it at all. So I was like, okay, uh, first thing I want to do is I want to cut your power and I'm going to overflow your toilets and I'm going to take the HVA system and turn the heat off. And I'm going to drop it down to the lowest I possibly can to where it's freezing. So you've got water that's, you know, flowing down the halls. You've got power that's going out and I want to cut off your backup power supply. And immediately I'm going to attack your uh, NICU unit, which is your babies and the people that are the ICU floor. I'm going to turn all the power off uh, to those systems because those systems are on two different circuits. You got one that's for the lighting and then you got the other one that's for life giving care. So that, you know, on the wall and you see that uh, if any hospital, you see those orange, yellow and green, you know, and red sockets or outlets that are there. They mean something. So I'm going to turn those off. So now you got people that are dying, uh, that are babies, as well as people that are in intensive care. Your halls are starting to flood. Your air conditioning is running at maximum, and you have no power. So uh, the next thing I'll do, is, uh, since I have the ability to access your elevator systems, I'm going to turn all your escalators and your elevators off, and I want to wipe those clean. So now you can't use any of your elevator systems. Everybody's now got to, you know, uh, you know, evacuate via the stairs. Then I'm going to pull the alarm system. And when I cut the power unit, then I'm going to cut off everything that is uh, with your uh, records system, you know, or CRM system that, you know, and wipe those servers completely clean uh, so that you have no patient and uh, records and data of any of your patients throughout the entire hospital. So now you're having to evacuate these people through the ER 
you've had to get the fire department involved and all your major public services to get these people to other hospitals, as well as you've got babies dying, people in ICU. They're, hopefully, if you have a helicopter pad, you're going to have to evacuate them one by one. And now you have to do everything by paper records because you know your uh, records management system and your EM- EMR system's completely been wiped. You have no data. And now you're in a triage situation. And what triage actually from historical means uh, from a wartime situation is that you have doctors then have to go uh, into triage, which means they have to separate the people that can live and the people that can die. So in other words, the doctors now have to make a decision of who they can save and who they can't save, who they have to let die because there's no way they can save them or try to save the people that they possibly can to the highest number and volume that's hackable. So, that's what I explained to them, you know, just like I did you in very, you know, uncertain terms and laid that in front of them. I said, this from this report right here of your hospital, this is what I can do in about 12 hours or less. If I got a team of people, I can do it in five. And every one of those doctors that was on there was white as a sheet of paper. Their jaws were on the floor. I could hear their sphincters just loosening and their bowels coming loose because they're like going, this one guy that we paid for a week did this much damage and we didn't know anything about it. I was as silent on the wire as possibly could be. And I painted this horrible, you know, uh, picture of what actually could happen. And I had one doctor saying this could never happen in the United States. I said, oh, yes, it has. And I was down there when it happened. He's like, where? I said, Hurricane Katrina. You had this exact scenario that I just painted for you at hospitals when Hurricane Katrina hit. And they were like, okay, what do we do to fix this? And that's where the real fun began. So I think everyone listening is is scared uh, to death now. So thanks, Chip. Um, oh, well, that's part you know, of my J O B. But you know, that's I, but you brought up you brought up a good point, and and I know we're wrapping up here. But the 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 one of the key points there is that you actually let them know like exactly how it could occur because I think a lot of people just in general the general the general public globally they they just can't fathom like they always like most of them think like okay this yeah it's hard to wrap your head around it i mean it really is i mean it's a whole different line of thinking you know and as i tell people and i've told you you know i've said this many a time on many many podcasts with many other hosts is that there's no good guy in any of these stories not even me i mean there's not i mean i get paid to be a professional bad guy and think of the most horrible things that i could do with the vulnerabilities and threats that i find and it is very hard for the normal person in their day to wrap their head around that okay and that's why this field needs people like you to help educate people on exactly what it is that people like myself can do and then the people that want to get into this what they're signing up for okay because you have to use abstract forward thinking. In other words, you got to think way outside of the box. Most people are thinking in a Polaroid picture. You have to paint a panoramic view, okay? Like I just explained. So you have to kind of set the you know the standards, the the, the mode, you know, the attacks, the the environment of the attacks, what can and can't be done, you know, and then the vulnerabilities, the risk, and the management that goes with those systems. Normal Joe Schmo people don't have a clue that this is even possible or it's even going on. 
<laughs> so, you know, it is it is a very you know interesting thing, and it's a very scary thing to bring people the awareness of what it is that can be done in OT. Thanks for listening to the show. If you're looking to secure your business better or build up your cybersecurity career, then check us out over at cyberlife.tv. That's C-Y-B-E-R-L-I-F-E dot T-V.